Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. Montreal today, having a cup of coffee with uh, J.S. Cornwayer uh, in his very cool offices, actually. I, I was saying before that uh, this feels like some sort of post-industrial society utopian <laughs> collective that sprung up on the weeds and ashes of, uh, yeah. of the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, actually the house we're in, Nutman House, is over 200 years old and was the residence of William Nutman, who was one of the first photographer in Montreal. He actually took pictures of Montreal, they're all over the house. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, for those of you uh, who don't know, JS uh, is a co-founder and general partner at uh, Real Ventures, which yes. I think it's one best VC firm in Canada for the last two years running. That's right. Um, and we, uh, we had a great dinner last night where we were talking about the future of AI and some of these new foundational technologies. So we thought we'd, uh, we'd put some of it down on tape today. Great. Well, um, it's a pleasure for me to be here and chat with you. So let's talk a little bit about AI first up. And yeah. one of the things I was amazed coming to Montreal is that not only is it a, a beautiful and fascinating city, it's become this sort of unexpected hotbed for yes. AI research and uh, deep learning. Yes. So w- what's going on? Is it something in the water? Yes, yeah, so I would say it, it was actually one of the world's best kept secrets. So it's, it's not something that just happened. We, we've had amazing researchers in uh, Montreal, but also in Toronto, that have been uh, doing uh, research in AI and fundamental research in AI for for dozens of years, even during the time where it wasn't hot and it wasn't exciting to do AI research. So uh, the three main researchers in, in that category are uh, Jeff Hinton, who was at the University of Toronto, and, Jan, now, now, at Google, right? and now is head of Google Brain, yeah. and Yann Lequin, who was also at U of T, who, and, and studied with Jeff Hinton, who is now head of Facebook AI. <laughs> and the third one, Yashua Bengio, uh, was at the University of Montreal. And of the three, he chose to stay here and not go work for a large corporation and sell his soul. And, but as a result of that, he attracted in Montreal, uh, so both at the University of Montreal and at McGill University next door, world-class faculty uh, of, of like-minded, mission-driven people who all chose not to go work for large organizations. So as a result of that, Montreal has the highest density of deep AI uh, research talent in the world that's not tied to a large organization. And who are still publishing their research. Who are still publishing their research, who are still teaching, right? So, so teaching and in, in, uh, bringing the new generation of, uh, of researchers. Uh, so, but when you look at that and you look at it historically, these three, these three gentlemen are sort of known as the founding fathers of this, the deep AI, the deep learning uh, revolution that uh, we're going through. So they came up with the algorithms that were used to um, allow machines to better uh, comprehend the contents of images than, than humans. But they've been at it for years. So their students, as soon as deep learning became so hot and some of these problems are being solved with it, all their students became hot commodities as well. So you can't go into a large tech company or a, a research lab, whether it's at Facebook or Google or Amazon or, or Microsoft or IBM, and not have Canadians or people who studied in Canadian universities 
at leadership. We see, I, I had always thought that the UK was one of these um, AI hotspots because of DeepMind, but then you correct me, I think, by pointing out that half the employees are Canadian. Actually, yes. Yeah. So I think I think the right number is two thirds of the, the the of DeepMind's employees when it was bought by Google were Canadians. So it's no wonder that you've uh, you've co-founded and uh, have sort of led investment in Element AI. Yes, which is sort of designed to harness some of this uh, local talent. Yeah. Can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So so basically, you know, as we were preparing, I mean, I'm, I'm, my first job is as a, a fund manager and an ecosystem builder. So we help build a Montreal startup ecosystem here. And uh, sort of seven years into this, this endeavor, about two and a half years ago, we were thinking about our next fund, the fourth fund. And uh, now that the, the startup ecosystems across Canada were, were, um, were very strong, we didn't need to do that anymore. And uh, if you want to remain a builder, well, you need to find what's next. And in our in our view, it was: is there what's the main core platform technology that will drive success and value creation over the next five to ten years? What is the the next core technology that companies will need to excel at to succeed? Hmm. And you know, we looked at AR, VR, we looked at blockchain, we looked at IoT. We also looked at AI and automation and quickly realized that actually all the technologies, AR, VR, blockchain, and IoT are pieces of this AI stack that we need to build. And AI is really the core uh, technology that will drive value uh, across all the different sectors. So we chose to invest in, in that area and got very lucky that Montreal and Toronto are sort of at the center of, of, of fundamental research. and. Studying the value chain a little bit more, it became really clear that to win in AI, you need to be very close to fundamental research. And the reason for that is simple, is AI is an open innovation uh, world, meaning that whether you work at Google, Facebook, or Amazon, or uh, whether you are in academia, when you have an idea, you don't file a patent, you write a paper. Right. You publish the paper in the journals or in, in, in you or, or in some of the, the main events that they have, and you have your peers comment on it, and then it becomes, you know, accepted science. And then usable to be commercialized by Exactly. The now the, the papers are, are extremely vague about how you implement those ideas into workable systems. Uh, but if you are close to the people who wrote the papers, they know how to implement them. Right. And then the value gets created from your ability to take that fundamental research and turn it into a product that you can take to market as quickly as possible. Which is very similar to what happened in physics and material science. Exactly. But that's why the big companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, for years now, I mean, I think we're in the sixth year of that revolution, have been gutting the research labs all over the world to bring all these amazing professors to come and work for them. That's why Hinton ended up at Google and Lequeux ended up at, at Facebook. To lock down the research. To lock down the research, to get access to the best of the research. But then what they also did is they went out and bought all this, the AI startups. So all of these engineering, uh, software engineering companies that had people in them that were data scientists, that, that had done some AI research, but I'd learned how to, how to code as well. And so over 200 companies have been purchased over the last six years, most of which had no revenue whatsoever, but they were building AI software. Right. So, but by doing that, these companies, and you could, you could say like the top 20 tech companies in the world and put them in that bucket, uh, I've cornered this AI talent market on 
the fundamental research side, but on the applied research side and on the software side. So as, these, as the big companies, main companies are now waking up and saying, oh my God, like I need to look like Amazon, right? Amazon, Bezos is there saying to everybody, we're an AI company. We have AI at the core of every business process. We have AI at the core of every product that we have. Same for Google, same for Facebook. I mean, you're the CEO of a big bank or CEO of a consumer product company. You look at that and you're like, wow, I need to look like them. Yeah. So the, many of them have tried to, to start their own research labs. They're, they're, they try to build their own engineering, AI engineering teams, but the, the talent just isn't there. It's already in the it's big company. It's not like hiring a social media agency. It's not. <laughs> so when we saw that, when I saw that um, two and a half years ago, it was like, wow, um, if we could find a way to build a relationship with world-class fundamental researchers and then hopefully build a full-stack AI company like Google as, and Facebook and Amazon have built on top of that fundamental research team, well, then we could build an AI platform that we could provide as a service hmm. to all of these other companies who want, who want to make this AI transition and put AI at the center of every business process, every product and every service that they have. And that's where we lucked out in a way that Montreal, as a result of Yashua Bengio not going for a big company, Montreal has this really, had this really high density of fundamental researchers who were still in academia. And we developed a, a product for them that enabled them to stay in academia. So still building the ecosystem because, you know, our mindsets are we're ecosystem builders. We don't want to gut the, the ecosystem of its, its, uh, its talent. So how could we offer them something that makes them more productive so they can do more research? They make good money because we pay them money. And then they, they get to, to think through new ideas, collaborate with people they're not used to collaborate with. And then in exchange for that, they do science curation for us. So they will identify for us for a given problem, what are the best papers to use? Who are the best people to tell us as quickly as possible how we can implement these papers into solutions? Who are the best up and coming talent that we should pay attention to that are in their labs or that, are, that may be working in Australia uh, that we should pay attention to because they, they will be very good. And they also uh, are able to send us business because these people get solicited quite a bit and are not always in a position where they can deliver on the, the ask of these, these large corporations. Right. So we were able to quickly sign 20 of these fundamental researchers, allow them to stay in academia, make good money. Uh, we're able to do that partner with the universities because the universities love us. We help them retain their talent. On top of that uh, uh, foundational uh, team, we call them the fellowship, we have built our own fundamental research team. Now, because we have these fellows who are all world-class researchers, we're able to attract world-class full-time full researchers to come work for us. We, on top of that team, we were able to build a, a full-time applied research team. So these are people that will take the best of what comes out of fundamental research, match it to a business problem, to a business data set, create a proof of concept that you can show a customer right. that works. And then we have a full stack engineering team, again, all world-class people, many of which are PhDs as well, are able to take these proof of concepts and build enterprise software, uh, cloud services, or mobile apps that can go into production into some of those companies. So you're not just offering a, a kind of a McKinsey-style PowerPoint deck about what to do with AI. You can actually, in a sense, provide commercial-grade Absolutely. So the, the vision for the business 
is to be this core AI engine that uh, will help our customers automate their business decisions using all the data that their enterprise generate. So you can think of it as, a, uh, as an SAP with AI at its center that is not just about producing reports that the human reads to make decisions, but it will actually go all the way to optimizing and automating the decisions. Is the vision that rather than just creating point solutions for these different customers, you'll actually at a general level solve things for entire industries? Absolutely. So, I mean, you may figure out this is a kind of a logistics algorithm which will solve scheduling yes. for any logistics company. Exactly. And you can and subscribe to it. Exactly. But the idea is like we, we are, our business model is to partner with our customers right. and enable them to win with, with AI. And we will never be the end, uh, we will never work with the end customer. We only work with the companies that interact with the, the consumer. So uh, unlike a Google or Facebook or Amazon, we're not looking to compete with our customers. Hmm. All we're saying is we're going, to be the, we're going to be the platform. You'll connect into our platform. And then, you know, one business process at a time, one product at a time, one service at a time. We'll put AI at the center of, of all these different things and enabling you to, to be more automated, more productive, more, uh, more profitable. When, when you've written and spoken about this, you've talked about the difference between applied AI and AI first. Yes. Could, could you unpack that a little? Sure. So, uh, I mean, so the way to think about it, and this goes back to the investment thesis for our fund, is when we look at the AI space, uh, we really have three categories. So you have what we call the AI stack, which is all the technologies and products and, and things that you need to build these AI systems. And you know, that will be, um, you know, sensors will be in there, but also you'll have, you'll have robots who can uh, get data to build AI, but can also receive uh, decisions that, um, that the outputs of AI. Uh, and then you have two types of companies that will be using AI. And um, the, first, the first one, which is what is the most common today, is what we call the applied AI. Hmm. So really applied AI is just about, it's a company that will look at what are the best AI tools that are available today that I can use to make a business process, a product or a service more personalized, more efficient, more automated. So for example, an, exa I mean, an example of applied AI is a company, like an e-commerce company that would use a recommendation engine to uh, as a user comes to their website and clicks on different products that they want to buy, they, they look through it, would make recommendation uh, that you know of new products to buy or um, or, or pricing a product or pricing a product differently. Uh, but that that's really what applying AI is. Uh, the AI first angle is complete is, is different. So that's more. Um, and we, we've invested in companies in, in that sector, is that's basically looking at a product or a service as a business process and say, if I had a system that learns from every interaction, how would I design the experience? How would I redesign this process or this product? Um, and what kind of business model would it have? So, so if you started with a clean sheet of paper. A clean sheet of paper, right? So right. an example of that is a, um, a company that we've invested in that um, has built a piece of software that enables auditors to do a better job at identifying potentially fraudulent transactions. Right. So it looks like a piece of software that the, 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 the auditor uses. It plugs into the ERP system and then will flag transactions. So they'll have yellow, orange, red, and green. And then the auditor goes and validates using their own knowledge 
whether these transactions are fraudulent uh, or at risk or not, and then teaches the system. Now, the system has AI at its center, so its interface over time will change as it learns from the interactions with the auditor. But the goal and the product that that company is building, and there's a three-year roadmap for that, is actually a system that will completely remove the auditor from it. So from all the learning that happens, the recommendations get better every time. The recommendations are done across verticals, right? Because they have customers in every single industry. So the system learns about all these, these different transactions. And then once you have a system that knows what a fraud looks like 99.9% of the time, well, typically a fraud will happen, it'll, it'll be like 10, 12, 15 steps. So you're able to detect three, four steps into a potential fraud that it, it could be a fraud. So now you can act, have a system that sends messages to the people who are in the process of doing a fraud that, that they're being watched, right? And, but then you can have a completely different business model. So instead of selling software to an auditing firm, you go to a big company and you say, we're going to make you fraud free if you install this software to avoid chargebacks. and we'll charge you 10 million a year, the right. same way uh, like error and emission insurance. So you, you flipped the, the business model completely. And uh, we see um, that happening in many, many, with many business processes and with many industries. So this is the, this is the true disruptive impact of, yes. of AI first companies. Yes. Yes. And we, we haven't, I mean, people talk about Airbnb and Uber being disruptive, but they're probably nothing compared to the true AI disruptions that are on the horizon. Oh, no. I mean, it's like um, uh, if you look at uh, uh, Tinder uh, as an example, right? I, I try not to. You try not to, but, you know, uh, I mean, Tinder is a massive disruption on, on how people... On personal uh, on, on personal, yes. And, but um, imagine having a Tinder that would read through the conversations that people are having that would match that with some of the information that comes out of Facebook, which is, you know, you could argue that Facebook today represents a... Um, a significant portion of someone's identity. Yeah. So, you know, and you could you could see adding LinkedIn to that, but combining these three together in conversations, um, at, if you had AI incorporated into a Tinder experience, uh, you could see how uh, this, this AI could quickly validate with another person's AI whether we are good fits or not. And negotiate, probably. And, and negotiate and, and skip the whole uh, courting uh, the whole piece where if you're not good with words you get no you get no action and actually the correct output of tinder.ai would would probably be just be one candidate exactly like you shouldn't be swiping left or right you should be presented with one person absolutely and and you should know that regardless of how the 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 first few words will be said because you know some people struggle with uh, emotional IQ, they struggle with using the right words to make people feel at ease. But if you already know that the person in front of you is an amazing match for you, or you're more likely to have put the effort to empathize with that person and get them through the, those first few uh, exchanges. Yes. So I guess when you're, when you're thinking beyond, I guess, this first wave of disruption and, and change with AI, you know, we're, we're, we're going to start to move into a world where there's going to be some very clear winners and losers. In fact, not just at a corporate level, but at a country level. Sure. And I was interested when you said you, you'd just been over to China recently and yes. that the Chinese, of course, have really decided to double down on AI. Yes. 
Yes. Um, what what does AI look like at a nation state level, and and sort of what are the, what is a what is a country that's transformed its processes look like? Well, so so if you if you think about nations uh, nations succeeding over time by having the most brain power, where you look at uh, America's success has come as a result of some of the smartest people in the world going to America to study and then staying there and build, building businesses and being part of the decision infrastructure in, in, in those countries. Yeah. Uh, once you start using AI in the decision infrastructure, whether it replaces humans or not, I think is, is, is that, it's, not, it's not a question that's relevant today, uh, but it, it will at a minimum dramatically help uh, making better decisions using you know, and data inferred decisions. Well, whoever has this, the best AI uh, is likely to make the best decisions in, uh, in how they operate their, their, their states, their countries, um, how they think about the allocation of resources. Security. Security. Um, I mean, you can even get into warfare because, you know, we live in the world where all the major, the major infrastructure is connected to the cloud in some form of another. Uh, you can imagine how an extremely smart person combined with really powerful AI could break into uh, could break into some systems and take control over them so and you know and, and I'm sure there'll be some listeners who, who will say oh we need to stop development of AI and and I mean that's we know this history tells us that you can't stop innovation you can't stop progress uh, it, it will happen on the ground. I mean, IT is extremely inexpensive today. AI is open source. All the algorithms are open source. Yeah, everything is out there. So um, it, it's not about stopping it. It's it's actually about doubling down and investing in it, uh, but doing it uh, with the right mindset and with the right values. And I think there are some countries um, that that I've started thinking about that. And you know, when you look at a country like China. I mean, because of the form of government that they have, they are able to uh, align the nation completely, all the businesses, all the people, all the data assets, uh, into building the you know the, the most powerful AI. And they've they've already made this commitment. They published a yeah I would call it visionary document for for a country recently about how they want to be the leader in AI within I think it's 15, 20 years, and. Um, you know, they, they have what it takes to, to make it happen. And, and there'll be smaller states as well that maybe because of their scale can do this as well, like Singapore, maybe Estonia. Yeah. So I actually believe that, and that's how we're building Element AI, is like because AI will have uh, dramatic impacts on our society works, right? So a lot of jobs will disappear and not, not just jobs um, of low paying, low, le- low level jobs, but also, you know, accountants, lawyers, Doctors, all the traditional knowledge workers, basically. all the traditional knowledge workers, all of those jobs are at risk. Uh, some are at risk sooner, some are at risk later. But if if you have a twenty year, 50, twenty to thirty year time frame, uh, I mean, all pretty much all the studies say that at least fifty percent of the jobs are going to go away. So, if that's true, uh, the only way you'll be able to implement these and really go to the full extent of implementation of these technologies in the society unless you are um, willing to cope with a massive revolution 
you will need to innovate as well on the social impact aspect. So basically say, so today people find purpose through their jobs, through their work. Well, in the future, that will no longer be the case. So what, how do they find purpose? So how do we change our society to enable these, these people to um, accept the fact that they no longer have jobs, but also, but still find a place in society where they are contributing to the success of it. If for no other reason that we need to assign economic value to those activities. Exactly, exactly. And I don't see, I don't see countries like China and Russia uh, who are also, I mean, Putin came out saying that whoever is going to win AI is going to dominate the world. Uh, so you know what he's working on right now. Kapersky lab. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but, ba but basically, uh, I don't see these two nations as being innovators on the social construct. No. And uh, which means that there will be massive upheavals within their own countries as they try to innovate and implement AI. Uh, and that gives countries like North America, like, like, like Canada, more specifically, the US potentially, if... Maybe Scandinavia. Scandinavia is a very because interesting it, one. The, you know, Singapore is interesting as well yeah. in that front. This is an interesting point about, about those softer skills like empathy and, and, and connection because you know, I've been kicking around this idea for a while about what does, what does a successful 21st century algorithmic leader look like in, in a yeah. business? Because, okay, let's assume that you've got rid of your back office and some of your more repetitive jobs. There's still going to be some humans there. Yes. How do they add value? And you know, it strikes me that there is one part of the brain there that has to embrace computational thinking to be comfortable familiar with algorithms yes but there's the other half which is that empathy for human beings which is the ability to motivate uh to uh, engage with people to understand the human condition which becomes even more important yes than the absolutely sociopath. absolutely like i have five children and uh you know they're they're teens and like between 10 and 19 and you know you want to guide them to a successful life, and the what I've been telling them is, uh, and and I've started telling this to people as well. I actually think the future of work is in empathy, uh, empathy jobs, because that that's there's a few reasons for that. One is um, as we're making this transition to automation, you will need leaders uh, that are able to still motivate, like you mentioned, whoever's staying. Because, yeah. you know, getting rid of 5% of your staff is one thing, but when it's 5% every year, it, it becomes extremely difficult for the people that stay, or you'll be transitioning, you'll be bringing a lot of new people with new skills. The cognitive stress will be... It's going to be yeah. extremely massive, uh, and, and so, so the, the, these empathy skills are going to be super important. I think as you're making this transition as a society to become a society that you know, when people find purpose through work to something else, you'll need psychologists, you'll need nurses, you'll need a whole bunch of people that are there to care and, and walk these people through this transition. And um, so I see a lot of um, a massive increase in, in empathy, compassion related uh, jobs. And these are things that, these are, these are skills that computers are like years away from being able to, uh, to provide. You, you could really, cynically see empathy in some ways just as the ability to read that data that's being emitted from this sort of you know hormonal emotive meat stack yeah. that is the that is the human interface yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now you, you'll be i think you'll be able to deliver empathy through messaging 
Right. So machines will be able to do that extremely well, yeah. but people will still need the hug. They'll still need the human touch. They'll still need to, to, to sit across a table from someone, have that person look in their eyes and feel like they care. You already see this in financial advice. I, yes. I, mean, I think it's already becoming fairly clear that a, an algorithm can create a perfectly acceptable, if not better, financial plan. Yes. But you probably need a human being sitting at opposite you to, you know, to, to make you feel comfortable with the results of the algorithm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, um, yeah, so, so we're, we're um, now what I find exciting is that like this is going to happen in our lifetime. Yeah. And, uh, and we haven't even talked about it, but, um, you know, once uh, now that AI and, and I really look at it as the IT stack, you know, the IT stack with AI is sort of the last technology of this digital stack. Um, what do you mean the last? Well, so um, if you look at um, the digital stack is, is basically like, um, like all the, the, the computers that we have are, are digital. They use, um, uh, they use one and, and zeros to right. store information, to communicate, you know, it's the... So the hardware strata. The hardware strata. Uh, and and then we've built we built software on top of that and that now that software you know if you look at uh, even 15 years ago very few industries uh, had massively implemented these information technologies digital technologies uh, to um, you know the internet was was in media newspapers were attacked and then e-commerce yeah but other than that like you really didn't have a lot of, um, the internet wasn't really uh, being... This, this was the whole digital transformation phase which yeah. has come through. Yes. So, so what you're saying now is now is the AI transformation. Well, I'm saying that, but, but in addition to that is over the last 10 years, this internet IT uh, software tra uh, transformation has now been deployed across all the sectors. So transportation is, is dramatically changing, you know, with the Ubers and the, the self-driving cars and all of that. Uh, education now is, is, is changing as well. Government is changing, you know, have internet platforms for that, you know, online voting and all, all, this, all this stuff. Um, financial services, as you mentioned, is also um, in, in uh, their manufacturing. So pretty much all the major industries are, have, have now uh, implemented IT technology, and now we're going to add AI to that, which will will dramatically improve productivity in all of these areas, but also have an impact on the way these industries are run, and the type of people that they need, and uh, you know, and, and the impacts that it has on our society. Well, James, it's been uh, wonderful to meet you and fascinating to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.